these efficiency gains, I mean, they will start picking up in a way that's almost incomprehensible to people as far as like what will be possible and what we can do. And I'm really excited about that. So I, I envision it shouldn't take us that long, really, right? Like two to three years, it's going to be such a different world being a financial planner than the world we're in today. Hi, this is Alexandria from Sacramento, California. You're listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast that helps you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. In today's episode, our host, Matt Fizell, CFP, interviews Justin Wink, the founder and CEO of Altruist. Altruist is a digital brokerage platform that helps financial advisors be more efficient. And in doing so, they make financial advice more accessible for more people. Straight ahead, you'll learn why Jason started his company, the strengths and weaknesses of current fintech, and how future generations of clients will change the profession. This February, we've partnered with YCharts to profile a few of the modern tools that financial planners should be looking into. Designed for today's investors, YCharts provides powerful tools for financial planners to save time and improve client engagements. I use YCharts to research stocks, mutual funds, and ETFs, compare and track model strategies, and to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on in the markets. Go to go.ycharts.com backslash FPA to get started on a free trial of the platform and make sure to keep up with them on Twitter at YCharts. All right, joining me today, I have Jason Wenk, who is the founder of a $2 billion RIA, founder of a $4 billion TAMP, and now the founder of Altruist. He was also named the 2018 Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and labeled an industry disruptor within financial services. So Jason, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down with us today. It's my pleasure, Matt. Thanks so much for, for having me on. Well, I'm just going to jump right into things. Uh, even after your great success in both the RIA space and the TAMP space at Formula Folios, you made a big change. What inspired you to start Altruist? Sure. So I, I think, you know, I've been doing this for, for a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, I think there's an evolution of sorts in all of our careers where, the, you know, the more we know things, the more we sometimes question, you know, we kind of ask the question why. But um, I've been in the RA space since, uh, since about 2004. And traditionally, you know, worked with custodians like TD Ameritrade was the first custodian I ever worked with, um, kind of on the RIA side, eventually worked with Schwab and Fidelity and others. And <clears throat> I remember, you know, a decade ago, just asking simple questions like, why is it so hard to open an account? <laughs> you know, like that seems so strange to me. Um, and then the more I dug into that business model, you know, there was a lot of questions I had. Like I, I started understanding their revenue model and it, it, really uh, sort of was frustrating that there were commissions. I started realizing that a commission was you know, really just there to make you think that's what you paid, but it was just an inconsequential part really of most of their revenue model. Um, and then, you know, when you grow big RIAs, um, and even if it's not big, I should, I should step back and say like, even when I started my first, um, you know, sort of wealth management RIA, um, I was using a portfolio accounting and portfolio management software. And, it was really expensive and it was really cumbersome and like the data was always bad. And I would you know, ask the software company why, and they'd say, Oh, well, it's the files we get from the custodian. And I kept thinking to myself like, well, why are those two things separate? Like, why should I have to pay a software company that is struggling with the data provided by the custodian? Why doesn't the custodian just do this for me, you know, and save me um, a lot of money. And then, you know, then eventually those firms became big and uh, you know, sort of in the latter 
uh, you know, years uh, that I was running at TAMP, you know, we were spending 200 and maybe 30 or $240,000 on software. Um, it just seemed crazy, you know, to me. So, so I'd say a lot of frustrations kind of all boiled up into, um, you know, me, my, my ultimate kind of decision maker really was actually spurred by like the direct consumer platforms. I kept seeing these platforms like uh, Robinhood is a great example. And, you know, you could hop on your phone, download the app, open an account, fund it and be trading in, you know, less than two minutes. Um, and I kept thinking, you know, I've been in this space for almost 15 years and there's been nothing like this built for financial advisors. Um, and uh, my, my background is primarily in engineering. So I thought maybe I should tackle this. Right. Um, so that was the, the impetus, you know, to kind of get going. Um, but uh, without rambling too much, it was, you know, 15 years of asking a lot of small questions, kind of cultivating into one really big one. Yeah. And I think that's something that especially we as newer planners don't realize, you know, how much work does go into opening account or all these softwares that don't work well with each other and create a ton of inefficiencies in our work. So in the landscape of financial planning in general, and those we serve, why is something like Altruist even matter? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, a huge part of, of kind of the, the why, and one of the things that's really important, um, is at least it's important to me, you know, it might not be important to everybody, but, um, as my firms kept getting bigger and bigger, uh, one of the things that you'll hear from advisors who've been doing this a long time is uh, they eventually sort of max out. You know, so when you're new to the profession, your biggest problem is just getting clients. And because of that, you don't ask many questions about scaling or um, you know, operationally, what's the most efficient way to do things. You're just focused on getting more clients. You get older and bigger, right? you've been doing it for a while, eventually you run out of time and space. And only at that point do people start asking questions about, you know, efficiency. Uh, and usually what that leads them to, by the way, is raising their minimums, you know, because they don't, they don't have any way to get more efficient. So they just start saying, well, I'm going to charge clients more. And so to justify these higher fees, I'm going to go up market, work with wealthier people. Um, this is really, you know, I think um, quite counterintuitive. You know, when we think about financial planning, we should be trying to, close wealth gaps and make financial advice and good financial decision-making more accessible. And we're never going to do that if we all end up kind of in the same place, which is we start with the best intentions, but when we get to the prime of our careers, we're only working with rich people, right? Um, so <clears throat> the why is something like an altruist important? Well, it, it really kind of allows advisors to have massive scale. So it's a beautiful experience, but there's a lot of things we've done to make it really fun to use. So if you're working with younger clients, um, it, it feels more relevant than, you know, old technology that, uh, you know, doesn't really look well, you know, critically good, doesn't function perfectly good. Like all of our stuff, you know, passes the eye test really well, but it's actually about the stuff that happens behind the scenes um, that allows advisors, if they want to work with clients of really any net worth, if they're beginning investors, if they have no money to invest, if they're a planning only client and you're not even worried about like managing assets because there's no assets to manage. All of those things are very possible. Um, and they're possible not just because of the, uh, the price. I mean, it's very, very, it's, you know, free for people for, you know, a lot of advisors anyway, but, um, but it's also just easy to use. So you never run into these roadblocks like, you know, the time it takes to open accounts, 
manage accounts, service accounts, like all of those things that, again, will eventually be problems in a new planner's career later down the road, they go away. So in theory, we can take care of five or 10 times as many clients and actually do better work for them. Uh, and that really makes good financial advice and good financial planners more accessible because we're not all capped at, you know, maybe 50 to 150 client relationships. Yeah, I think that is really interesting what you keyed in there on, you know, at the start, all we're worried about is finding clients. We eventually run out of time and that causes us to, you know, raise the minimum, ultimately blocking more people from financial planning. So how do you think that's been shifting with the rise of fintech and also what obstacles has fintech really created that have exacerbated that problem? Um, well, I don't know, you know, as it relates to advisors, you know, the, I would say fintech is a, a very broad term, right? Because it covers everything from like, you know, cash transfer apps and, you know, digital wallets, um, you know, credit. Uh, so things like student loan refinancing, right? Like it's all those elements. And then it does still encompass, you know, what we do as financial advisors. But if we, if we look very specifically, I'd call it the B2B side of fintech, which is, you know, the business to business, like a, a software provider working with a small business like a financial advisor. Um, my opinion, you know, which might not be real popular with the other um, software companies, is we haven't done a whole lot. And, and the case in point would be, you know, advisors have gotten a little bit more efficient, but they haven't gotten that much more efficient. You know, so 20 years ago, you know, what a financial advisor could do in terms of how many clients they could successfully, you know, take care of isn't that much different than it is today. Um, prices have come down a little bit, but not a whole lot. Most of the largest firms still have really large minimums, million dollar plus minimums. Um, and the cost of the software has gone up. It's not gone down. It's very, very expensive. Um, so if you're a new planner, there's obviously a lot of paths that new planners can take. But if you're a new planner and you make a decision at some point, I want to start my own RIA. I'm going to run it myself rather than be part of like a group. Um, it's it's pricing out, you know, really the the, the sort of innovative, uh, you know, thinkers. I guess the 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 next generation of you know what I think should be the great financial advisors. So um, there's certainly been again an evolution, uh, but I think it's primarily been on the consumer side, which means you know there's been a lot of tools developed um, and they've been substantially funded. So if you think about you know what is venture capital or private equity fund. They don't fund many tools for financial advisors. They fund companies like Betterment and Wealthfront and SoFi and Robinhood. And I could go on and on, right? Even public companies that have subsidiaries like Cash App um, and Venmo, you know, from PayPal. Like it's, it's fascinating where all of the money's flown. And it's all been it really towards technology designed to disintermediate the financial advisor. Um, and Advisors are kind of, you know, a lot of them, yeah, I would say are going, well, that's not really a big deal. Those are not the kind of clients I work with today anyway. My kind of challenge to advisors would be, you know, I put this on Twitter the other day. I said, you know, in 20 years, today's 10-year-olds will be your clients. And, you know, their expectation of what uh, a financial advisor or financial help should look like is going to be very different. So even millennials today, which some would say, well, you know, very different kind of expectations than my baby boomer clients. Look, the baby boomers in 20 years will be dying at a very, very fast pace, not to be morbid. And so the uh, wealth transfer will finally happen uh, and it will be largely millennials inheriting that money. 
um, you know, some younger Gen Xers, I guess. But and then the next generation clients are kids that are in you know elementary and middle school right now. Um, and the tools that we have as advisors would be embarrassing, you know, to put in front of you know a, a whatever ten or twelve year old today. Um, they would laugh at it. You know, it, it's 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 kind of akin to you don't see many young people using Facebook anymore. Um, and that's what's going to happen to these tools for advisors. So yeah, there's been innovation, but it's largely been to get people to not want to hire an advisor or planner. Um, and we have to be aware of that. We shouldn't be afraid of it, but we should just be aware of it. You know, over the past decade, there's been an ever increasing focus on some of those technology apps that you mentioned, which, you know, a lot of people label as robo advisors. And that is, you know, what some older planners think the next generation want. What do you view as the current strengths and weaknesses of robo advisors? Well, I mean, I think some of the obvious things they do well um, is they're very low cost. You know, they're very efficient. Um and, and they're helping people save uh, that otherwise maybe would have had a hard time saving. Um, so, you know, micro investing apps like Acorns is getting people to save their spare change, so to speak, or, you know, get rewards or incentives based on their debit spending and sweep that into a savings account. Um, it, you know, it kind of remains to be seen, you know, how effective that will be. You know, are, are people going to micro save till they get $500 and then use it to buy a Coachella ticket, you know, or, or is it going to like actually turn into, you know, long-term savings? Um, but there's been absolutely some really cool things that have happened, I think, um, on the robo side. And I think, you know, where there's, um, where they've struggled is just the economics, you know, the, 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 uh, you know, as a venture investor, we call it the unit economics, sort of the client acquisition cost, is quite high and the average, you know, investor doesn't have a whole lot of money. And, you know, as a result, you have a very, very long sort of payback on your cost of acquisition. And so they're, they're, they're somewhat struggling to uh, maintain their growth rates. Um, you know, on the surface, you know, if we're an advisor and we look at a company like a Betterment that I think has recently hit, you know, surpassed 20 billion in, in assets, I think Wealthfront has as well. Um, you know, that sounds really, really amazing. But then you start thinking about, you know, how many hundreds of millions of dollars of investment they've taken in. And, you know, sort of the cost to, to acquire that is pretty bad, actually, you know, compared to human advisors. Um, so I think we have a huge advantage still. I mean, again, you take every robo platform out there and you combine them. And that's just a few weeks, you know, of human RIAs in terms of the volume of business they do. So that's really been their weakness. Um, and I think the biggest opportunity really is just merging, you know, the two things, right? So the efficiencies of automated advice, um, automated account opening or high efficiency account opening and servicing, um, gamifying to some degree the enjoyment of saving and investing and the victories that can come along with it, Um and then also making it really, really easy. You know, the robos have done a great job because they've struggled with client acquisition, at least to how much it costs to pay for it. They've done a great job of actually getting referrals, which is something that, you know, human advisors have sort of struggled with, kind of creating a scalable, efficient, replicable way uh, to get more clients without paying a lot for them, you know. So, so I think that's kind of like, you know, the, the, the areas where they've been great and, and some of the things that we can learn as advisors uh, from them. Yeah. And then just taking a step back to, to what we were talking about before, you know, obviously you're, you've founded a company that focuses on technology and financial planning. What importance does technology play in the financial planning process? You know, kind of both from the eyes of the advisor within the firm and ultimately to the end consumer, our clients. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, so there's a ton. I mean, I'd say like some of the obvious things are, you know, technology makes it a lot easier to do difficult calculations you know, than, than it was, uh, you know, 20 years ago even. Um, but, you know, beyond the obvious, right, like the computing power, um, there's some really interesting takeaways and actually like taking a look at a robo platform uh, that we haven't mentioned yet, but it's called personal capital is, is a great like way to learn some lessons in terms of like the value of planning. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with personal capital, you know, they're, they're kind of like this weird in-betweener, like they're, they're a robo advisor kind of that in some respects, but they, they have all human financial planners on staff. And so what's really interesting about them compared to other robos is they charge about three times as much. They charge a fee pretty similar to a human financial advisor. Um, and their average account size is very large. Um, can't remember it off the top of my head, but I want to say it's, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's, it's actually higher than a lot of uh, RIAs, um, like regular, you know, standalone RIAs. Um, but what's really, really interesting about them is I think they're one of the few that's profitable. I think they're quite profitable, actually. And, and part of that is because all of their client acquisition is uh, based on financial planning tools and calculators. You know, so if someone looked into their platform, they, they allow you to uh, sort of very easily, it's sort of a mint.com, you know, type of experience where you can connect all of your accounts, plug into different planning engines, and you kind of have this planning first experience. And because they're able to use a planning first experience, they're able to acquire a, a much higher net worth client um, or a little bit more sophisticated client than some of their, you know, competitors like Wealthfront and Betterment. So when we think about like planning specifically and kind of how technology can play a part, I think, I think there's a few things that have been very much validated in the last decade. Um, and one is that, you know, people are absolutely looking for planning. Um, they're looking for it all over, including the Internet. Um, and they're absolutely willing to hire advisors that are planning centric, um, in some cases, planning only. Again, that's the number one acquisition method for uh, for personal capital. Um, so there's a lot of really cool things there. I mean, I think beyond, you know, some of the acquisition uh, methods, I think that, um, you know, investing as a whole has become it's we'll see what happens, you know, in 2020. But certainly the last decade, um, it's really been all about watching costs, you know, so investing has become pretty commoditized. There's not nearly as much value in sort of the traditional you know, AUM managing money business model. And so all of your value primarily is coming from, you know, being a financial planner, not from being an asset manager. Um, and so I think that, you know, uh, if, if we're going to try to differentiate, be successful, be desirable in the eyes of clients, um, you better have some good planning tools. Uh, so both on the front end, like when you acquire a client, do an initial plan, but then also how you're going to monitor and sort of deliver on the promises of that plan. Um, and you know, technology makes that a lot easier. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I liked what you talked about there with the acquisition and this whole business, you know, financial planning has been predicated on acquire and retain. Do you think at some point we might see a shift in that where we're more willing to let certain clients go to focus in on a niche or a specialization of client we serve? Well, I think the, the, the niches are already, you know, I think that's always been, you know, something that um, has been effective. There's not really that many planning centric tools um, to serve niches, you know, so uh, in other words, there's some, you know, like college specific planning, but there's, um, you know, if somebody just works with, you know, uh, you know, dentists or something, right? Like that's not like planning for occupational niches, I guess yet, but 
Um, what I think is really fascinating anyway, in terms of like the direction that, you know, certainly planning can go is the automation side of it. Um, I think it's actually going to become super important. You know, financial planning software can do a lot of computations or right, calculations for us. But in the end, it's still a very human experience of gathering data, sort of using that data and manipulating it within a software application to present, you know, sort of a um, here's where you are now versus maybe here's what you where you could be if you make some changes. That's still very manual. Right? It takes a lot of time um, and it's not particularly um, scalable. And so I think that's maybe the next big innovation in financial planning is um yeah, perhaps some additional, you know, niche coverage. But I think the biggest thing that has to change is the automation. You know, how can we um, serve more clients with less work, and, but actually deliver better outcomes? And right now, most of the financial planning applications are uh, a little bit lacking in that department. There, there's not a ton that have that um, sort of interactivity with the client. They have limited, but not, you know, in a way that's, um, you know, probably where we need it to be uh, to reach mass, uh, really mass adoption. Yeah, and God forbid you want to change from one uh, technology provider to the other, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> On the planning side, it's pretty brutal. But I think that creates like you know a lot of interesting opportunities. Um, I'm really surprised that nobody's sort of created like a a catch all. You know, meaning like, what if I had an application that it wasn't actually a planning application? It was just an application I used to capture all of the data you know that I use for financial planning. And then that application, I could simply one click, you know, import it into whatever financial planning application. Now I'm sort of, you know, owning all of my client data. I'm not letting the software vendors own it. And I have portability. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, maybe a million dollar idea for somebody if they want to build, you know, an API collaboration tool like that. Um, but uh, but you're totally right. We're very much held hostage to our vendors, uh, which is a shame. You know, so commonly, a lot of those software providers, you know, they're claiming how their fintech can help advisors be better advisors. I want to flip the script a little bit and ask you, how do you envision human advisors evolving to bring out the best of what fintech provides to our clients? Um, great question. You know, I think, um, you know, so I'm very cynical, you know, about uh, about advisor facing fintech. You know, I think that uh, most of it's quite old, so it's not actually even built on modern architecture. It's part of why so many of them struggle with integrations. Um, you've got legacy providers that, you know, what's crazy about technology is how fast it changes. Um, and if your architecture of your software is 10 years old, it's going to really struggle to be relevant in today's age where today, you know, we work in a very microservices architecture world, which is, um, you know, kind of how APIs work. And, so, so it's really, you know, I, I feel bad, right? Because some people had great ideas. They launched and built companies, you know, a decade or even longer ago. And now they have to almost completely rebuild their software if they want it to be relevant kind of today. And I'm sure that'll happen 10 years from now, too. You know, so it's very, very hard to be on the cutting edge um, in anything. But it's really hard when you're in these micro segments of the market, you know, meaning like software just for financial advisors is a very small segment, you know, of the software market. And you're not typically going to get a lot of really, really bright people, you know, dedicating their lives to serving a micro kind of component of the software space. Um, so, so, so I'm a bit cynical because you kind of can pick up, but um, in, in, in a sense that I, I think that there, there needs to be a lot of change and evolution um, as advisors we're stuck in a lot of respects. I mean, like, I wish I could say, oh, there's tons of great solutions. It's just a sea change of opportunity. And what I would 
actually, if I'm being truthful, I'd say is it's a just mess of bit providers that if you allow it to, it'll consume you and make it to where you're really not spending any time doing your job. You're spending all of your time vetting and managing software companies, you know, and, and trying to integrate their data, um, you know, in a perfect world, if our job is, and what we love and our passion is being a financial planner, we should be trying to spend every moment we can helping clients. Um, and so that's part of the problem. I mean, it, it, you know, I wish I could say there's a magic pill that would make advisors efficiently adopt, you know, and maximize the evolution in fintech, but there hasn't been an evolution really in fintech. There's a few newer, you know, kind of uh, providers have done a really good job that are built smart and built well, um, but the majority are not. Um, and then, you know, there's these things floating around like fintech solution maps that have 150 vendors on it. It doesn't help anybody. You know, it just makes everyone's lives more, com- you know, like complicated and uh, makes it really, really difficult to manage. So I, I think in a, in a lot of respects, we need a ton of consolidation, a lot of less, you know, and uh, instead of a lot of more. Um, and as advisors, one of the most thing, most important things we can do to be efficient is sort of say no, you know, don't be, te- you know, sort of duped into building a big giant technology stack. Like the, the fewer vendors you can have, probably the more time you're going to be spending with clients, which is ultimately going to allow you to be more successful and allow your clients to be more successful. And I think it's something a lot of us get stuck on, you know, like learning all these fancy tools, getting distracted by the shiny objects. What would your best piece of advice be for, you know, young planners on learning enough about fintech, but maybe not going too far into it and getting stuck in analysis paralysis? Well, I think in so many ways, you know, it's um, the decision making process is not that different than the financial planning decision making process. You know, so I think one of the really important things is kind of thinking about, well, well, what happens if I successfully implement this new solution? Like, how does that really affect, you know, me or my business? Because a lot of things we don't get much ROI from. We spend a lot of time, you know, managing them. It seems like we're cool and cutting edge. But if we were really being honest about assessing the value creation, we'd find, wow, this isn't a whole lot. Um, It reminds me, you know, we have some really incredibly talented um, product uh, managers here at Altruist that, you know, they came from companies like um, Salesforce and Xero, which is a big, you know, SaaS uh, tax software. And it's interesting, sometimes they'll challenge, I'll have an idea and they'll just ask the simplest question. They'll be like, well, so if we successfully build that feature, what's the benefit? What happens? And if I sit there and I can't come up with anything, I'm like, great, great question. We're killing that. We're not going to build that feature because there's, we can't quantify it. It's like, oh, well, we're just going to do it because everyone else does it. You know, let's build this feature of a dashboard because seven other companies have it on their dashboard. And then you really start thinking about it. You're like, no one uses it. It's irrelevant. It just takes up space. It's going to be more buttons that no one uses. Um, so, you know, I think if, as an advisor, we can be very, very thoughtful about measuring what is the, you know, if we execute this, the outcome going to look like. And if it's not like a major improvement, it's probably not even worth the implementation for some micro improvement. And I would think we work that same way as planners talking with clients. Um, you know, if someone's like, oh, I want to get into the rental real estate business and they've got to go out and, you know, spend whatever, you know, hundreds of hours a year and, you know, do some crazy financing. And when all the dust settles, they increase their cash flow like $60 a month. We might say, 
yeah, like on paper, you make 60 more dollars a month, but it's just absolutely not worth it. Like you're much better off just focusing on other things. So similarly with us. Yeah. And I think that's a really interesting point also. And I want to go back to what you said at the beginning of, you know, we're kind of stuck in this, um, you know, way of just raising our minimums and sticking with those ultra high net worth or high net worth clients. Do you think it's kind of a double-edged sword in the sense where, hey, I should just keep doing what I'm doing and not explore this to serve the newer you know, generation of clients? Or what are your opinions on that? Yeah, Matt. Well, I think if people do that, then they're, you know, um, they're not really building a business if they, if they make that choice. They're just choosing to be self-employed. And so there's nothing wrong with that, by the way. You know, so if somebody says, look, I just want to have a career and make a great living, take good care of some clients. And then when I'm ready to hang it up, I hang it up. And, you know, really nothing that I built, it has any value. I Meaning, I'm not building a business. I'm not really, I guess I could sell it because there's always some goodwill value of my assets, you know, client relationships and whatever. But again, it's not really a business. Um, and so I would say like a business is, you know, is something where you could envision that it could succeed for a hundred years or more. If you want to have a 100-year business, then you can't just work with you know baby boomers and seniors that have a half a million dollars or more. Um, you really do need to have a multi-generational practice, uh, and and you can do it efficiently. Like a, a, an interesting phenomenon is the only real reason that planners have those really high minimums is because they're sort of forced with this you know, uh, impossible to change formula, which is that, you know, there's only 24 hours in a day and there's only one of you. So, you know, something has to give. Um, and if you want to get more output and you don't have the ability for more input, you just have to raise the uh, amount you charge or the amount of money your clients have, right? It's like not, this isn't like rocket science, but again, if we were able to hypothetically, let's just keep math simple. And let's say we could serve 10 times as many clients as we do today. We didn't have to work anymore, like it's exact same amount of work. And we could actually do a better job for those clients we do today because of automation. We were able to, you know, watch things and pay attention to details that would be impossible for you to do. Even if you only had one client, you still couldn't do it as well as a computer could, right? So if that was the world we lived in, um, I could, in theory, you know, uh, drop my minimum by 75%, and I could actually lower my fees by. 50%. Um, and I'm not actually changing my income a whole lot, right? I think that the way the math would work is it would be, you know, um, roughly the same as I think it net out like a 20% increase in sort of like income, if you will. Um, but a lot of it's because we're just taking like, you know, a huge leap forward, like, you know, these orders of magnitude leaps forward in the quantity of people we can serve. They don't necessarily have to get have a ton more money. Um, that's, you know, what I'm hopeful people will aspire to do. I mean, we don't, always know. Um, but if somebody wants to be, again, if they think more entrepreneurial, they say, look, I want to build a real business that can scale. And if I ever one day want to add employees, or if I ever one day want to sell this, or ever one day want to leave this to the next generation of my own family, um, I could do that. Whereas again, the self-employed advisor, nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, they probably should just do what they keep doing right now, um, because someday they're going to be obsolete anyway, right? Like if that's all someone's business, their differentiation is, Hey, I just work with, with wealthier people. Like I hate to be the bearer of bad news. And it's unpopular when I bring this up with people and I, I, and I don't mean to, to make it you know, sound horrible, but, um, there will come a day where 
um, people are not going to be willing to pay the prices that they pay for advisors today. It just, you know, it won't be that far down the road. Um, it, it's an interesting phenomenon, but, um, you know, the teenagers of today, the tweens of today, uh, their version of like what's going to be reasonable and realistic will be very, very different. And in 20 years, so much can change. You know, a huge portion of what a human financial advisor, even the planning aspects will be able to be automated over the next 20 years. Um, so we're going to have to be able to work with clients of all wealth levels, very different fee schedules than we work with today. Um, we're going to have to serve a lot more clients um, or we're going to have to be like in more micro focused and, and just have really, really defined uh, niches. Um, but either way, you know, like things will change a lot and, and, there's, and there's nothing we should be afraid of. But but I think that it's, um, you know, absolutely possible to serve clients that have different uh, net worths and young clients um, eventually are going to not be young anymore. You know, clients that um, as long as they're committed to saving and following advice, eventually they should become very, you know, great clients for somebody. Um, it just takes some time. Yeah. And I'm going to challenge you a little bit. You know, again, we hear about all of these people who don't have access to it. And, you know, we have pro bono and volunteering. But other than that, what actually needs to be done, in your opinion, to reach the majority of Americans that don't have access to financial planning? Um, well, one of the things that's um, going to be necessary is more financial planners. Um, you know, the uh, um, you know some things will change just generationally. You know, I, I'll say like there's um, uh, there's people today. You know, I've had this conversation with some friends of mine that you know we have family members that just won't. They just will not go anywhere other than a bank for financial advice. Like that's just kind of how they are. Um, in fact, they don't even trust the bank, but they trust the bank more than they trust the internet, right? So wh whatever reason, it's like the lesser of evils for them. And that's just where they go get their financial help from. Um, in, in a number of generations, that'll just change, right? So you look at kids today, um, and and I don't mean to use the term kids like in a bad way. I, I have kids that are teenagers. Um, and I look at how they manage money, and it's fascinating Um you know, Venmo and Cash App are like their primarily methods of taking care of their money, right? So they don't, they've never stepped foot in a physical bank branch. Like they don't, they don't even really use ATM machines. You know, it's like, uh, you don't really need cash anymore in their lives. Like cash is this weird thing that their grandma sends them, you know, uh, in their birthday cards or whatever. Um, so it's a very, very different kind of world 20 years from now and 30 years from now. Um, and so, so I think that, the, um, you know, some people weren't, we as advisors just, we cannot help them today, you know, they're, because they're, they've got a bias in their mind and they're not, we're not going to change that, right? Like they've had some experiences in their life that have shaped the way they, they think about money and they will never hire us. And it's, I don't know the solution for that. Um, but then the future generation is a very different ballgame, you know, and, and we have some really large generations kind of coming um, into the workforce in the next decade or two. Um, there's going to be a lot of people that need and want access to financial help. Um, and there's going to be a massive decline if the trends stay as they're right now in number of advisors out there and planners out there. Um, you know, so we think about like, the average age of a financial planner today. And while there's not a lot of impetus for those people to ever retire, which is kind of like a bummer in some respects, but you know, uh, part of that's because they didn't build good businesses. They just, you know, were self-employed for many years. Um, so they'll just kind of keep coasting, you know, until they, uh, can no longer work, but, um, but there will come a point again, time will prove itself out, whether it's 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 
well, we'll see a very, very large number of people who need help and want it actually, and then a small number of people uh, to give it to them. So we need, to, we need to get more financial planners for one. So like that's one huge, huge need. And, and I'm not probably the person to solve that, but I, I'm certainly aware that we need to get more people into the financial planning profession. Um, and then we have to be able to give advisors tools to make this actually um, economical, right? So if I start an RIA today, and it costs me, I don't know, $10,000 for software to kind of get up and running. Like it's hard for me to then go out and pay clients that can't pay those bills. You know, I mean, like, like we as advisors, we have a cost of doing business. But what's interesting and like part of why I started Altruist is, um, you know, outside of a financial planning software and maybe a CRM if someone really wants, you know, they need that at that early stage. Um, like the barrier for entry now to run an RIA might be, you know, two grand a year. Um, so we've just cut the base cost by 80%. And as someone scales, you know, what today, someone that might be spending 50 by, you know, next month, they could do the same work better actually at far more scale and their costs might be, you know, $3,000, right? So, so by cutting the cost of software and increasing the amount of efficiency, like that is a huge step in the right direction in or, and, and sort of allowing us to have a little bit more freedom and kind of who we work with and how we work with them. Um, because it won't be as hard, right, to do great work for clients. And it won't be as expensive, you know, to kind of be in this business. Um, and hopefully things like that, you know, again, this is just like, you know, a small step, I think, you know, over the next year into the next decade. I mean, like these efficiency gains, I mean, they will start picking up um, in a way that's almost incomprehensible to people as far as like what will be possible and what we can do. Um, and I'm really excited about that. So I, I envision it shouldn't take us that long, really, right? Like two to three years, it's going to be such a different world being a financial planner than the world we're in today. Um, and, uh, and a lot of that will be driven from, again, sort of like massive innovations uh, in reducing the cost to be an advisor and a planner, um, and uh, also the amount of time it takes to be an advisor planner. So there's the efficiency gains, the automation gains. Uh, it's going to be uh, pr pretty amazing. Yeah, I think that, that's really an interesting thought there. And I, I want to key in on what you said about the barrier to entry. You know, if, if we do lower the barrier of entry to starting a firm, if that's what you want to do, what do we as a profession have to do to still maintain that quality of what financial planning is and how does the financial planning profession have to evolve to, to keep a positive or create a positive image of having a financial planner? Yeah. Great question. You know, I think, um, uh, I, I think there's been a lot of progress there, you know, in the last, uh, couple decades. And I know, you know, around the year 2000, um, which is when I got into the business, uh, there weren't a whole lot of people that identified themselves as a financial planner. Um, you know, the number of CFPs was way lower than it is today. I mean, a fraction of what it is today. Um, but even the financial planners, many of them that had the designation back then were people who got it in the eighties when it was pretty easy to get <laughs> and didn't really mean you knew that much about financial planning. It just was a credential. Um, but I think, uh, I think that direction, I think uh, it would be really great, you know, if, we had a universal standard, you know, and I, and I think there's a, a chance the CFP mark can become that. And it already really is, I think, for those of us in the profession. But I think in the public eye, um, it'll become, you know, sort of akin to the CPA. 
and become sort of this expected, you know, sort of standard of, of knowledge um, and expertise and care. Um, so that's, you know, education, I think, is a, is a big part. And I think that, again, it has been moving at, um, in the right direction uh, and can get better and better. Um, the, uh, the way that new advisors and planners are brought into this space, into the industry, um, that's a pretty big challenge, really. Um, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, if you're, if someone's fresh out of college, there's not a lot of places that you can go and really learn how to be a great financial planner. Um, because almost every large organization, they want to bring you in and teach you how to be a great salesperson, which is very different, obviously. Um, and then there's a handful, you know, there are, you know, boutique firms, you know, but there's, you know, that are successful, you know, smaller RIAs, hundred million, 200 million, 500 million, whatever. It, when you're small, again, it, it's, um, you might get access to seeing like to, to being around great planners and advisors, but it's difficult to have like a career track where you really learn a lot, um, and then have, you know, a clear path, uh, to, you know, sort of advance, um, and so that's a bit of a challenge. So those are the things we have to get better at. I mean, and I wish I could, I, I could say I have the answer, but I, I know what some of the problems are. Um, and, you know, we need to get more people excited about being a planner. We have to have a standard of care and sort of excellence. Um, I, I think moving to a fiduciary standard, a true fiduciary standard and sort of eliminating commissions would be um, a great start too. Then that, at least that would sort of, you know, um, eliminate some of the conflicts of interest perhaps. Um you know, but but there's a lot of things right that we could do. Um, some require you know government help. Uh, some require large organizations to you know continue fighting for what they've been um, you know really responsible for building, like the CFP board and FPA and so forth. Um, and so a lot of work there. And then I think in the end, uh, so much of it falls on us. You know, those of us who are active in the business. Um, to make sure that we're good stewards, you know, so if we have, um, influence, like if we have the ability to bring, you know, to hire people, grow a practice, um, you know, nurture planners, um, is just kind of just, you know, be thoughtful about it. Um, what would we wish someone would have helped us with when we were starting? Um, you know, the work that you're doing, I think is really important in that front and, and there's others too. And so, um, it's a, a massive collective effort. Um, and, uh, I, I certainly have confidence that we'll get there. Um, but we've got to kind of cut out some of the bad actors, create some, you know, consistency. Um, and, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, I could build all the greatest software in the world. And if we have people that don't know how to use it, you know, or people who aren't well-trained uh, or people who try to use it for the wrong, the wrong purposes, um, I mean, shoot, that's not the type of efficiency gains we want, right? Is, is giving more unqualified people the ability to go do more crappy work. Right. Well, and I, I think you're really on to something there. You know, the, the inefficiencies in the firm, it does, it just eats away the time, right? And that's why you can't go through the career path in a small firm as easily as some of the larger firms, because there's just not the operations in place. So if you were to look out like even one year from now, what would you consider a success for the financial planning profession? Well, you know, a year, um, I'm such a macro thinker, I guess, that a year seems like thinking about tomorrow to me, I guess. But um, I would say, um, you know, in that short of a time period, it's going to be hard to see like, you know, big, meaningful change. But what I would be hopeful about anyway is when we start thinking about some of the trends, it'd be great to see, again, more young people in the business, more women in the business, more minorities in the business. I think all of those things um, will help us get access to, you know, help, help us serve a more diverse group of clients. So again, if the goal is make financial advice more accessible to more people, well, 
you know, the clients and the advisors tend to be a reflection of each other. You know, if we don't have uh, people who can connect with the client because they're so different, um, you know, and this is not meant to sound bad, but maybe it will, you know, but I don't want to work with like my parents' financial advisor, like some old gray haired white guy. Like that's not, you know, who I want to work with. There's probably a lot of people out there. That's the impression they have of financial advice is like whoever their parents were working with. So we need to have financial planners that reflect, you know, sort of the communities that we uh, want to serve. That would be a great short-term goal. So we just start getting more people um, into the business that are um, interested in working with their peers. Uh, and if that's a more diverse group of people that comes in, we're going to start serving a more diverse group of clients. Um, long-term, there's a lot more that we have to do, but that'd be a great start. Just out of curiosity, what would that 10 10- Ten-year vision be for you for the success of the profession? Yeah, and I think that um, you know, if I'm looking ten years out, a few things that I think um, I think as it relates to financial planning, um, I think that ten years from now, um, you know, there'll be a you know pretty large change in how we do planning. So I think it'll be uh, financial planning will be something that's done at scale, meaning like highly automated. So the way it'll work is a very kind of augmented experience, again, primarily technology first humans coming in so they can do a lot more, um, not indifferent than if we saw like what happened to the tax profession, you had all these websites where people would go in, they could answer a lot of questions themselves, get to a certain point. If they would decide that they wanted to do it on their own, they could, if they decided they wanted to kind of refer, but take that information over to a human, they could as well. Right. I think we're going to find like that becomes sort of the norm in planning. Um, the execution of plans, I think will be, in, everything will be digital. Uh, it'll be paper for anything in the future. Um, it really shouldn't exist today, but I think it's like super clear. Um, and I think almost all of these things will be, will need to be mobile first. Um, you know, today there's almost nothing an advisor planner can use. That's truly interactive with their clients. That's, um, that's uh, you know, mobile. Um, you know, there's mobile web. You know, so like stuff that kind of sort of works in a web browser on your phone, but you know, truly like native uh, to a mobile device, like the you know, Android or Android or um, uh, or iOS. I mean, there isn't much, but I think like again, that's ten years from now, everything will be that way, All right? So those those of us who are still like you know making forms and printing those things off, I mean, like we're moving the wrong direction, right? It's going to be very much uh, entirely digital, and not just digital, but moving towards you know a phone. Um, and if I say that largely, it's like you know um, young people today, that's how they live. You know, they like uh, they do their homework on their phones. Like it, you know, they're they're not using even laptops half the time anymore. Um, and so we're gonna have to just get used to the fact that, you know, we consume more and more and more content, almost all social media is mobile. Um, email is over 50% now mobile. I mean, everything is moving that direction. So that's going to be the direction of even planning. It'll be like these very easy ways on a mobile device for people to get very interactive with planning in execution of the plans. It'll be, all right, let's get started. You click a few buttons. I mean, we can already do it at Altruist in under two minutes. Um, in some cases, like way faster than that, as far as like sort of the execution of like opening accounts and getting money moved around. Um, it's going to get so much faster and easier and better. Everything will be fractional shares. There'll be no commissions or transaction fees for anything. So it doesn't matter if it's mutual funds, options, stocks, all of those things will go away. Um, everything will get more transparent because in this world of commission-free trading, people are asking questions about like 
where, how, how is everything free? And so transparency will be pretty key. Um, I think that people are just going to know a lot more about like how their money works. Um, and there's going to be a ton more competition, you know, and it's going to be from people that advisors haven't ever had to compete with, but we've all seen, you know, where companies like Amazon and Google are kind of kicking around banking services. Uh, it doesn't take that long for people that do mobile banking services or digital banking services, start offering digital asset management and, you know, eventually financial planning and all these other things. Um, and, and so there's going to be some interesting competitors and they probably won't be the usual suspects like insurance companies and, you know, banks and broker dealers and wirehouses. It's going to be people that understand the future technology companies. And they look at opportunities in vertical integration, you know, sort of integrating experiences across their platform with their users. Um, it's going to be a very affordable, but that's all going to happen inside of 10 years. I'm quite confident. Very interesting. Well, it, it it's refreshing to hear that our jobs aren't going to go away. We're not going to be, you know, made obsolete by computers, but we should just be excited and embrace it so that we can serve more people. Yeah, totally. And, and again, I think that, um, again, the, the great irony here is that there's going to be so many more people who need and want help than there, than there are planners to serve. Like we, we're going to, we're going to be swamped. <laughs> you know, there's going to be tons of opportunity. Um, we just have to have the tools to, uh, delivered at scale because the prices are going to have to come down. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jason. I'll let you get back to your busy day, but I really do appreciate you spending uh, the time here with us today on the podcast and sharing some insight with our listeners. It was an absolute blast. Hope it was helpful and I uh, can't wait to uh, hear some more of your guests uh, here down the road. Yeah. And I can't wait to see how Altruist looks a year from now. <laughs> It'll be fun. This February, we've partnered with YCharts to profile a few of the modern tools that financial planners should be looking into. Designed for today's investors, YCharts provides powerful tools for financial planners to save time and improve client engagements. I use YCharts to research stocks, mutual funds, and ETFs, compare and track model strategies, and to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on in the markets. Go to go.ycharts.com backslash FPA to get started on a free trial of the platform and make sure to keep up with them on Twitter at YCharts. Love what you hear on this podcast? Join us in the FPA Activate Facebook community, where you'll find a community of other passionate planners like you. Not only that, but there are live How We Do What We Do sessions focused on what real financial planning looks like in practice. Be sure to join us there to lend your voice, become a better planner, and help grow the financial planning profession.